0: Looking at science in the news and science behind the news, and uh, with me is uh, my old mate, my old mucker, Andrew uh, Glester. And um, we're, we're very happy uh, uh, to be joined again by Joshua Warren. Joshua Hello. Was, was with us <laughs> last week. Hello, and uh, he's crazily come back in again. That's I know. What, I don't know what I'm what doing. What is wrong with you? I know.
1: I've got my foot in the door
0: now, Martin. We can't escape. If you've noticed <laughs> we're shackled. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. No. It's great. To, it's great to have Thank you. you for being here. Yeah. And uh, we're hoping that if she can, Jamie Thacker is going to join us. She's an old old friend of the show. But uh, if not, we'll we'll struggle by. But it would be nice if. Uh, if uh, she's able able to make it. Um it's a bit astronomical yeah, this week. Good. You'll be pleased to hear Andrew <laughs> our resident astronomical person. And and Josh of course we have to rem- remind ourselves you're a bit of a physicist on that's this me. side. Yeah. 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 So um are you are you a, now we were talking about this last week but are you a, a space fan in particular? Does that does that press your buttons? Yeah. Space, yeah. Yeah, it does. I, yeah, I love space very much so. Yeah. I, I um I read a book
1: uh uh about the moon and about the uh, the moon landings. And um I was particularly interested in the Apollo missions, particularly. Yeah. Um and one thing that struck me about that was the uh Apollo one and the and the fact that the uh they had a terrible disaster on Apollo one, the the, the, the training. Mm. Um all well, of the astronauts died in that and it was really quite quite terrible. But that really uh I suppose um Affected me in such a way that I just wanted to learn more about it. I suppose. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So, which book was that? Sorry, <laughs> which book was it? I can't remember. It was. Um, oh, I'd have to remember the the author, but I'll, I'll get back to you on yeah, that. Yeah, no,
2: one. <laughs> don't. Worry, don't
0: worry. <laughs> yes, go immediate research. Really <laughs> want. Yeah, we, we, we want. We <laughs> yeah, want. I have to Google that one. I'm so old. I've got. A, I've got a book. I, I don't know if I've still. I, I'd like to think I've still got it somewhere in a box. Uh, Patrick Moore's book of the Moon, in which it said. And I stress, I am now so old, it says in it, when astronauts land on the moon, they may sink into the dust. Mm. We don't know. Mm. Uh, pre-1968. Brilliant. Cool. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, while we're on, well, we started talk about moon books, right? <laughs> right?
2: While we're here, if anyone's looking for last minute uh, Christmas, not even last minute yet, really, is it? But Christmas uh, presents for a moon lover, then the book Moon Dust by Andrew Smith is a wonderful, wonderful thing. He went and chased down all the Apollo astronauts who were surviving a few years ago. So there's a few more than there are now and uh it, it's a fascinating study of what happens to a human being when they do something like land on the moon and then have to live out the rest of their lives back
0: on earth yeah Ooh. brilliant <laughs> yeah. stuff. yeah wow well thank you for that i was, I was thinking why why you were saying that you know what we ought, we ought to do for our christmas special next week oh yeah this idea in the back of my mind that we we should talk about um good christmas books yeah that's a good idea from the Point of view of the science show. That sounds like yeah. A good idea. We'll come to that. Well, let's let's, let's look at um, the one of the first stories we've picked for this week. Apparently the sun uh, may not be an only child it may have lots of siblings in fact the chances are that it's got um, a great many a few thousand uh, known as solar siblings by um, astrophysicists and of course uh, that if they have planets around them they may well host uh, life um uh, in the same way that our sun uh, hosts life at least as far as we know on this planet maybe on others as well and um A team of scientists recently recently searched through the data from several of the European Southern Observatory telescopes, that's based down there in uh, in Australia, uh, as well as the European Space Agency's Gaia mission to find one such sibling. And um, uh, this story uh, is asking the question... Uh, could the sun's long lost relatives help us find life elsewhere in the universe it, is this why do why do we think we know that that these stars are related to our own sun? andrew do you, know, do you know anything uh, well like that? i believe that um the thinking is that stars have a
2: particular um well it's called what's it called met- metallurgy or something like okay that. uh but what it, uh met- met- Metallicity—that's the word. Metallicity, but that is means, that to
0: do with metal.
2: Uh, sort of, it's to do with all of the elements that are in the sun. So, well, what the elements that are making up that sun, the size of it, and the age of it, um, would suggest that it was perhaps made in a particular part of uh, space at a particular time. So that's why they're called solar siblings. They may have been made in a in a stellar nursery in a, um, a cloud of a huge cloud of dust, which, uh, if you looked, if you look at the Orion Nebula on, uh, through a telescope, which is part of the Orion, um, Orion Sword, and yeah. the Orion constellation, yeah, you'll yeah. see a cloudy thing. That would be a, a stellar nursery where stars are being formed. So um, those stars that are being formed in that would be stellar. Uh, siblings, and the one uh, of course our star was our sun was formed uh, in a similar thing um, but the funny thing is that where we are in our part of the galaxy all the stars around us don't have a similar makeup, they don't have a similar makeup, they don't have a similar age, and they're not a similar size which means that ours is a bit of an outlier and you have to look a bit further away to find one that could possibly be a solar sibling, because those ones that were made in the same um, stellar nurseries would be made up of the same materials.
0: Right. And uh, one of and the, possibly a similar age. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um
2: and one of the things that uh, you would uh well, well there's a couple of things that we've sort of know about our solar um life the su- the life of our sun which is that in its early uh days <laughs> years um it was um it it probably had quite a disturbed part, uh, early part of its life right it so it probably had um, a supernova exploding near it which delivered some of these elements into the into the mix of of what formed our sun and it probably had a a collision or near collision with another star which sent it out from where it probably originated closer in towards the center of our Milky Way uh, galaxy and sent it out to this um, arm of the Milky Way galaxy that we're sitting in right now. Um, But yes they've found one, well they think they've (laughs) found one they've found found a star which which fits um, the criteria for being a similar sort of What did I say? Metallicity? Yes. Uh, uh, so I'm very impressed with.
0: Yes, a Um, new word.
2: Yeah, it's good. good. Yeah, yeah. New word. Learned it during the show. Pretty good. (laughs) Live on air. Learning new words.
0: Of course, the thing is, there's a lot of excitement about this. And then you get more and more speculative ideas, which, of course, are are perfectly worthwhile. But we have to say that they're very speculative. And one of them is that uh, there's a possibility that life gets transported between stars in the same cluster. Yeah. So, again, very speculative. Idea, but but one can see how there might be mechanisms that, that where that would happen.
2: Yes, absolutely, and and also the, I, th- I guess there's the other side of it, which is that we know that our star is is somewhere where life can survive. So if there's one that's similar to it, then you might think that that was a good candidate to look for for life. Um, mm. If you were looking for a place to life, the star itself is called HD one eight six three zero two. Uh, which just trips off the tongue. You know, <laughs> all of these things. It
0: should be called Barry.
2: Yes. Barry, Barry the star. Barry the star.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Barry the lonely star. Was that because the Chuckle Brothers is sort of. No. There's no connection at no? all. Okay. <laughs> but I like the link you made okay, there. That's good. Well, it's yeah,
2: it's. Uh, what is it? It's 56 parsecs away. Oh. Um, now you're
0: talking. Now, what's a parsec? A parsec is a unit of time. It's not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, a is a dis- it's a unit of distance in the, in the same way that a light year is a unit of distance and not a unit of time people make the mistake of thinking that uh, a light year is an amount of time but of course um, a light year is the distance uh, that light can travel um in a year so light has a certain speed uh 300 million meters per second roughly and um the distance that light can travel in a year is called one light year. Mm. And then uh, a parsec is... Uh, i believe larger than a light year i'm not sure how many it is how many parsecs make up it's a light just year just
2: over 3 parsecs per light year i think there you go in that is a hundred uh, this star hd186302 Todd tripped off the tongue <laughs> is uh, 184 light years or 30, 56 parsecs away and proxima centauri which is our nearest star just for a comparison is uh, 1.3 parsecs
0: away how far is bristol to london in parsecs then <laughs> i think we should i mean in the spirit of yeah. the show there's we, we one should way to only out. refer to distances oh, we yeah. could do the traffic news couldn't we yeah. in parsecs there's yeah. a tailback of about 0.000 <laughs> no, 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 there parsecs. is
2: literally only one way to find out and that is to fly the millennium falcon there and see how long it takes
0: all right <laughs> okay well look let 's stick so um uh, part of the excitement of all of this is 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 that the uh, sun 's relatives if if such they are uh, might have planets around them uh, similar to ours and may uh, create conditions uh, as, as such as found on earth, which means that um, there may be life uh, which then leads to uh something much much closer. Uh the, this there's a story Saturn's rings have earth-like water mm-hmm. while moon Phoebe has a totally different kind. So Saturn we should just say it, Phoebe is the name of a moon uh, that orbits Saturn. Mm-hmm. And um, it's got different water. Now, um, if I've got this right, uh, water, uh, this is slightly tricky, but water, which we all know, is H2O, so two atoms of hydrogen and uh, and, and, uh, uh, an atom of oxygen go into a molecule of water. But you can have such things called isotopes which means you basically have a a different weight of uh, the the nucleus. So although something is still hydrogen, it can be twice or even three times as heavy as another hydrogen atom, and and they're called isotopes. That's right, yeah. So hydrogen uh, is made up of one proton in the nucleus and an
1: electron orbiting around the outside. Um, But uh, an isotope of hydrogen would mean that there is an extra... Uh, neutron in the nucleus of the hydrogen, which would mean that that atom is is heavier, more massive. Um, and then one of these atoms of the slightly heavier hydrogen can go into making uh, water uh, with the oxygen and, and another uh, heavy hydrogen. And that's what we call heavy water, yeah. is the, uh, is the uh, water made up of a heavy hydrogen atom.
0: So a, sim- a simple guide, the only thing that determines what element an atom is... Is the number of protons it has in correct. its nucleus? Yes. Correct. That's the only the only determinant. So uh, you can have so many uh, if you you know so many protons. It's always the same element, but the numbers of neutrons can change, the and that's of what we can, yes. and that's what we call uh, isotopes. Yes. Um, now, all right. So having done that, that's our that's <laughs> our physics lesson. Now, the story, which is quite interesting, uh, is that um, we've we've found that. Um, saturn's rings have the same kind of water that we have on earth but phoebe has got water made of deuterium and not uh regular to, i think mm. i think if i've got yeah, that no, right. I right so that means the water has come from somewhere completely different yes uh, by the way um do you, does anybody know uh whether if we were to drink what's called heavy water i mean the germans made it in the War didn't they for their nuclear reactors? Mm-hmm. That's all, or they're, they're, when when they were experimenting with sort of nuclear uh, uh, fission, they 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 used heavy water, and it has it is one of the ways in which you you can manage nuclear reactors. So we can make it, or we can filter it out, and just have heavy water. But if you were to drink a glass of heavy water, would it would it damage a human?
1: well we 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 drink it all the time because a a certain proportion of the water we have on this planet anyway is made from is made from uh, these isotopes is heavy water but it's um it's quite a small percentage. I'm not sure the percentage of normal water right. is, is made of heavy water. And I don't know what would, what would happen if it was a whole glass worth of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I tell you what, when Jamie comes in, because she's going to be in after the next song, we're going to ask her that question. Uh-huh. Yeah. So let's just get back. So I keep deviating from the story, asking these crazy questions. So... Yeah. What would what what does it mean then that Phoebe's got different water? Well I think it means that it was made by the Germans uh, just before it out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, no. This is a fantastic conspiracy theory. <laughs> Yeah. We should put this around. I assume that's what it means. No, it oh, means um, that it was probably made uh, in another part of the solar system and then ejected from that part of the solar system and captured by the significant gravity of Saturn and became one of Saturn's moons. Because, uh, yeah, as they say, all the other moons that they've looked at, all of the rings, Saturn itself, all has the same water that we have here on Earth. And uh, Phoebe is fizzy water no it's um heavy water and um yeah so just uh, similar to our sun being formed uh, earlier closer to the heart of the galaxy and being thrown outwards this will have been formed towards the outer edges of our
0: solar system and flung inwards ah fascinating Lovely stuff, stuff. Isn't it? It is it's is fascinating yeah. stuff very, very, I love it very interesting now look um, I'm, I'm going to go I, I, I really want to win the award for the corniest <laughs> um, link that I could possibly think of and Ooh, I might just break, look break, at you guys and everywhere. say you know <laughs> when people say to me what do you want for Christmas I just think what more could I want <laughs> but the BCFM team oh here we go. <laughs> Pretty corny, huh? Yeah, but true. Um, and you're listening to uh, Love and Science on uh, BCFM 93.2 or bcfmradio.com, uh, anywhere in the world where you happen to be. Uh, and it's always great to have your company uh, these Monday afternoons. Uh, next week is our Christmas show. So we're playing plenty of Christmas music because I'm definitely in the mood already. Um, and, um, but... Uh, next week is our, our last show of the year and uh, it's uh, it's our Christmas show I'm delighted on that happy note to say that uh, Jamie Thackra is, is with us I told everybody uh, you'd be coming in and b- as you are the most biologically minded among us <laughs> we've got a question that we need to ask you which is we were just discussing earlier about heavy water and we, we know that a certain proportion of water on Earth is heavy water. It's an isotope. Uh, the hydrogen in it is an isotope of, let's call it normal water. Um, and my question was, if you were to drink a glass of it, would it do you any harm? I mean, a pure glass of deuterium water.
3: Okay, so um, I had a little look at this because I heard you talking about it as I made my way in. Um, So heavy water is not radioactive. Um, Apparently, if you drink heavy water, you don't need to worry about radiation poisoning. However, that doesn't make it safe. So the way that we process um, water in the body, the way that we use water along with oxygen to create energy, um, actually requires a certain number of hydrogen atoms to be coming off the water. Water. And so the number of protons and neutrons and atoms that the water has is essential for um, the way that we make energy. And we have we have the wrong number of those that can interfere. So, what, from what I can see, it seems like that the biochemical reactions in your body are actually affected by drinking heavy water. So it's not poisonous, but don't do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so if you know if you go into um a restaurant and they say would you like heavy water as an option best not
3: yeah I think either, maybe just decline <laughs>
0: okay you don't
3: don't want to test it really <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's been it's been a while well it's not been that long it's been about two about three weeks since we've seen you Jamie but anything exciting happened in your life
3: ah um, so last time I came, I just got back from California. So I had a little chat with Andrew about that. Um, I came on. But since then, it's just been getting my clinical trial ready. So I'm doing a short clinical trial as part of my PhD project. Um, and so I've just been trying to get all the approvals in place to start that in January. So it's very exciting. Ah,
0: very good. Well, all, all, the, all the best with that. In a nutshell, can you tell us what you're trying to find out?
3: So previously, we've done some research with people with Addison's disease who don't produce their own cortisol which is your primary stress hormone and the results from this um, trial where we trialed a new way of replacing cortisol in these people um, showed that our new method might actually work. So what I'm going to be doing is inducing Addison's disease in healthy volunteers and actually trying to understand how this new method of delivery might be affecting the way they process emotion and working memory. So it's more of a scientific study but kind of off the Back of a clinical
0: trial. So. Oh, right, interesting stuff. Well, we we, uh, we hope that go, hope that goes well for you. Um, so our next story. If you're still listening to us, by the way, and not listening to Theresa May uh, <laughs> on the BBC, um, and you're still <laughs> you're listening to us, uh, we we're, we're to our remaining listener. Um, <laughs> We, we, we've, we've, we're all here malcolm uh,
2: yes. <laughs>
0: we' <we've laughs> two <turned> in here <laughs> we've got uh, um the uh story that china we we often we often don't think about China is a very active has a very active space program. Yeah, I know, but it does. But it does, and uh, they've already launched their first mission to land a robotic craft on the far side of the moon, the, the dark side of the moon that, yeah. we, that we don't see. Um, Chang'e four, I think it's called, uh, is going to see a, a, a static lander and rover touchdown. In uh, Von Kármán Crater, located on the side of the moon, that we never see. Uh, and, uh, well, the payload's blasted off for all night. I know it may well have landed, as do you know if it's landing? No, it's landing early next year in January. And, uh, Why is it taking so long? Uh, it, well, it has to go for an orbit
2: round the moon first and uh, get to the point where it's going to land. That's but my quick answer
0: to a question <laughs> I don't know. That. But it only takes yeah. two days to get there.
2: Yeah, a three. Oh, days. three, all right. Yeah. <laughs> OK. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't make any difference. Yeah, no, it's incredibly... I would just point out, Malcolm. though, you said the dark side of the moon. As a matter of fact,
0: it's all dark, and yes. uh, there is no dark side of the moon. Yes, and, uh, fair enough. It's but, just the side... What we mean is it's the side we don't see. Yes, the far side of the yeah, moon. Yeah, the far side.
2: And uh, it's an interesting place where it's landing, just to move on from the question I don't know the answer to. <laughs> um,
0: good, <just laughs> good strategy, though.
2: Uh, which is... It's a crater, that I think the largest crater on the moon, um, and... It's it was formed by a collision from an asteroid hitting the the, the bottom of the moon, as we think about it. And um, what may have happened as it hit, because it's such a big crater, a big impact, may have gone deep into the moon and then ejected some of the inner bits of the moon out onto the surface. So by landing there, they're going to be able to... Um, discover bits about the interior of the moon which is really really very cool
0: indeed. Yeah. And as we're going to hear shortly it's a, all the rage at the moment finding out about what's going on inside. Planets. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah, but that that story is coming up stay tuned. That that I'd have <laughs> to Resist say Resist the urge to turn I've, over. I've already heard that interview
2: and it's far better than whatever Theresa May saying. Um, <laughs>
1: very good. Far you, less depressing you. as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: um, but yes yeah, so it's there's a it's really cool this mission. I'm um, Apart from anything else, it's landing on the Moon, cool enough in its own right, right? But um, it, because it's on the far side, it has to have a satellite um, orbiting the Moon, or well, kind of sort of stationary around the Moon, um, so that it can send messages to that satellite to then be beamed back to Earth. Because it's on the far side, we'll never have radio contact directly with it, so it has to have that uh, satellite with it. It's also got a rover, so it's got a lander and a rover, and um something called a, the seed experiment which is um it's a it's basically a box of potatoes and seeds, which it's taking to the moon. To sounds find. like a very low-budget experiment. Oh, it's pretty cool, though, right? I mean, if you're going oh, to potatoes
3: it. are heavy. Sending it's, them yeah. into space is probably not that easy. It's, I think it's about, I
2: think, <laughs> let me just check. I think it was 3.6 kilograms of potatoes, right?
3: Yeah, I couldn't um, carry those home. Yeah, that's, <laughs> but
2: that's my phone ringing. It's <laughs> Theresa May.
0: It's <laughs> Theresa May. It's <laughs> just, <laughs> saying, could we stop broadcasting? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. no one is listening. <laughs> 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 I know. Yeah. Yeah, just ignore
2: it, Andrew. I will do. I'll t- I should turn it off <laughs> um, but uh, yes, so and they're they're doing that because they want to study photosynthesis on the on the on the moon, which is you know it's going to be different than mm. than it is uh, here. Um, it's it, like
3: space biology. That sounds like the yeah. best thing ever. It is. <laughs>
2: we should talk about it. When, so it's going to land in December. To be honest, Malcolm, it's an incredible, wonderful mission that's going to, that's taken off. It's going to land
0: in uh, January, and we should talk about it in depth. Then I think absolutely. All right. So we'll we'll we'll. We'll hold that thought. And, um, well, we, we're going to be talking about the InSight uh, lander in just a moment. We've got, to, we've got to, uh, an interview, uh, a little bit about that. Um, but I love this story, uh, which has uh, come up this, this week. This is from NASA, the JPL, the um, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and NASA have said that um, they can hear, inverted commas, the Martian winds. Isn't that marvelous? Mm. So they've landed this. Awesome. Uh, the, the spaceship' space, spacecraft on on Mars and it's able to detect the the, uh, the the Martian winds:
4: You' are listening to Love and Science on BCFM.
0: Indeed you are. And um, that uh, was uh, John Lennon. So this is Christmas as a quintessential uh, Christmas song now. Um, Insight is a Mars lander designed to give the red planet its first thorough checkup since it formed 4.5 billion years ago. Uh, The name Insight stands for interior exploration using seismic investigations, geodesy, And heat transport. How about that for a name? And on November the 26th, so just a few days ago, the spacecraft arrived at Mars, plunged through the thin atmosphere, heat shield first, and used a parachute to slow down. It fired its retro rockets to slowly descend to the surface of Mars uh, and land on the smooth plains of Elysium Planitia. The lander touched down safely on Mars at 03.52.59am UK time. Uh, And as that suggests, it was an incredibly precise uh, uh, event. One of the team watching nervously with a group of colleagues was Bristol University-based Dr Anna halston
4: none of us could really speak for the last minute or so and and then we were all a bit dumbstruck that it actually landed it was kind of unbelievable and i think it took a few days for any of us to really believe that it had um, even with the first images coming back it was still like wow it actually happened they actually did this and it started broadcasting like really
0: quickly didn't it
4: Yes. So uh, we were very lucky that um, there were two experimental satellites called Marcos, Mars Cube One, which are suitcase sized satellites. They're really tiny little things. And we had two, Marco A and Marco B, what nicknamed Wally and Eve after the film Wally. And um, unbelievably, these made their journey all the way to Mars just so that they could relay back the signal as we entered because the other orbiters were not in range at the time we were entering so they were able to send back the first picture from InSight within minutes literally that was the fastest picture we've ever had back from a landing mission so it was amazing to see what the two little satellites could do for us. Well
0: I know, I know of course that as well part of the excitement would have been or anticipation would, would have been because Mars has a history of uh, sort of disastrous crash landings hasn't it?
4: <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, of, uh, what is it now, 43 missions we've attempted, robotic missions we've attempted, only 18 had landed previously, so, and in fact, of the, or 18 had been successful, that includes orbiters, and I think of landing, it was less than 50%, so so it was a real, yeah, really nail-biting time, especially when you know that we launched InSight on, on a ballistic trajectory, there was very little we could do, a little bit of um, motion control to direct it slightly, but basically once we'd fired it off it was on course and there was no stopping it so we just had to hope that it had gone off at the right angle and obviously we had checkups throughout but it's still a terrifying um thought listening to all the things that have to happen all the bolts that have to fire how the parachute has to deploy at exactly the right moment and just unbelievable really the engineering feat that was pulled off that day to get it to the ground safely
0: um big 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 congratulations to the team and of course and you and your colleagues now as you've got access to loads and loads of data just to just tell us what um,
4: what what is your involvement with this mission well i'm a seismologist so um although my first degree was in astrophysics i then did a phd in seismology and i've spent the last 10 or 15 years looking at earthquakes all over the world and deploying instruments all over the world And what I'll be doing, I've got a couple of roles. So our team in Bristol will be looking at how we can use that seismicity to determine the internal structure of Mars, just like we use seismic records on Earth. And I'm also part of what's called the Mars Quake Service. So we have a frontline team of about eight or 10 of us, some from Zurich at ETH, which is an institute over there, some from JPL, and um, some from IPGP in France, and me from the UK. And we will be in charge of analyzing the data when it first comes down and well, our job is to detect and locate any Mars quakes that might be seen and then we have to tell the rest of the team what we've seen so that they can then take that data forward to help create the models of the internal structure. So, so, it's, so it's really quite exciting.
0: So uh, I mean I'm, I'm assuming mm-hmm. from, from that
4: that Mars is fairly active. Well that's that is a good question. So there is currently, as far as we can see, no active volcanism at the surface. The, the largest volcano that we know of in the solar system, Olympus Mons, is on Mars. And that's there, but it's dormant now. Um, so we don't know what volcanic activity we have. We expect there to be seismic activity because well, on Earth. Obviously, we have earthquakes which aren't on plate boundaries, that are within the centre of plates. We call them intraplate boundaries, intraplate events. and We expect to see a level of activity somewhere between the intraplate events we have here on Earth and that that we saw on the Moon, because, of course, NASA sent seismometers to the Moon for a number of years in the 70s. We had seismometers on the Moon collecting data there, so we know that there's seismicity on the Moon. We expect there to be seismicity on Mars, just because the planet is still cooling, which is the main source of the convection that we have on Earth. We don't know what kind of convection. We don't see plate tectonics in the way that we do on Earth, but we still expect the planet to be cooling and contracting, and that should still cause seismicity that we should be able to record. And of course, there are meteorite impacts, and we have lots of satellite images that show us even now, of new meteorite impacts that occur. And these will obviously give us a seismic source because they are hitting the surface at quite a high speed. So those will be a great source for us as
0: well. Do you actually need some kind of seismic activity as far as the InSight uh, probe is concerned in in order to do experiments to see, for example, what's going on at the core of Mars? Do you need those echoes and those waves or can you uh, sort of ping something into Mars to get some sense of what's going on?
4: We can't ping something in terms of a seismic signal, at least not yet. I mean, we keep dreaming of getting Elon Musk to send something. But for now, (laughs) we have other tools we can use. So we have what's called the heat flow probe, nicknamed the mole. It is a probe that will be put down on the surface of Mars, and it will hammer its way down, about five metres down, in stages, and as it goes, it will record the temperature, and from the temperature and the heat dissipation, we can get an idea of the internal temperature of Mars, which will tell us a lot about the internal structure. Because if we know its temperature, we can interpret a lot more about its um, composition. We also have a project called RISE, which is a radio positioning experiment with two antennae, which will give us a very precise position of the lander on Mars as it orbits, and over time, that will show us if there's any wobble of Mars now like an egg if you haven't boiled it if it's soft in the middle it will wobble when you spin it whereas if it's completely solid its spin will be much more uniform so we expect the same from Mars if there's a lot of liquid inside we expect to see quite a lot of wobble on the rise experiment And also, the seismic experiment can use just noise from the planet. The the atmospheric excitation, so the wind blowing around the planet, blows the entire planet, and it makes it vibrate. And everything has a resonant frequency. Just think of when you tap a wine glass and it rings. Everything has that, and the Earth has its resonant frequency, and so will Mars. And the resonant frequency is affected by the internal structure. So that's something else we will be looking at. And we also have the tides from Phobos. So obviously we're all very familiar with Earth tides here, with our moon coming around and moving our oceans about. Now there are no oceans on Mars, but Phobos is very small, but it is close to the planet. And it still gives a gravitational pull on the surface that over the course of the mission time, so that's two Earth years, we should be able to detect that pull. And how Phobos pulled Mars will tell us more about the internal structure of Mars. So... Even if we don't have any quakes, we can still find out a lot. Obviously, I'd be much more excited if we had many quakes because that's one of my primary jobs, is to detect them. But the mission will not be a failure in any way if we don't have quakes.
0: And uh, that was Dr. Anna Halston. And uh, a big thanks to her. She's a seismologist from Bristol University working with uh, the InSight lander on Mars. And uh, we wish them well. Um, And uh, we are looking at... uh, all kinds of stories in the news we had loads of space we're going to have a, a, a completely uh, well, i just want to say wasn't that a, that was a nice interesting interview oh, I wasn't loved it that, Malcolm. yeah, yeah with um uh, all all about insight with uh, dr anna halston from uh, bristol university and uh, it's so exciting because when these probes land if i don't know if probe is the right word but i, I suppose uh, it's a good generic word um when they land of course they're giving out so much data. yeah, It's just pouring out and, and, and sometimes it's, it's given data which it takes months, doesn't it, to or years to analyse and then suddenly, you know, somebody sifting a piece of data goes, wow! This, yeah. is, this is something about Mars that we, yeah. we, we, we didn't know. That's incredible stuff. I, I have to say, there are probably
2: some people listening now who's just switched over from BBC Parliament or whatever you're listening to. If you missed it, you can of course go back and listen on the BCFM websites by going to BCF and looking through the show's list and finding Love and Science. Or you can go to uh, loveandscience.podbean.com and find our show as a podcast with all the music stripped out and just the science and silliness
0: left in. Indeed, indeed. Well, we've had a very spacey show today, but we're we're moving on from that because um, uh, we've got an item here about uh, fasting. Apparently, I I, I don't know if any... Any of you guys? So I've got uh, uh, Jamie and Joshua, uh, Andrew here. Uh, I, I don't know if any of you guys have ever done diets. I've always I've always been a bit shy of diets in the sense that I always suspect they're never going to work. Mm. Uh, you know, whenever I I, I need them, but uh, I don't know anybody here. Done,
3: done. So I'm the same as you in that I'm very suspicious of them, but yeah. I do them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have tried um, several different diets, that, and I'm a vegetarian as well, so I always have to find the vegetarian version of whatever the uh, latest like, yes. fad diet is. And I think that's where I'm falling short, because like, as, as a vegetarian, I eat a lot of potatoes, and that is definitely mm. where I think I'm not losing any weight. Are
2: so. they moon potatoes, or just potatoes? No, just regular ones, <laughs> okay. but I
3: I will try and source moon potatoes from now on. <laughs>
2: I'm, I'm currently doing the five two diet, right? And I'm, I think I'm supposed to do it for the rest of my life. Who knows? Um, but I'm, I'm on a fasting day right now, so this box of quality streets and chocolate biscuits oh, is tricky. Yes. To oh yes. that. It's The chocolate. F M. You're a
3: strong man, Andrew. I don't think I could I, keep the I, fast. That's what out. I
0: wanted—a
2: little bit of
3: appreciation. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: well, the story, um, which is uh, we picked it up from Science Daily, is saying that in intermittent fasting has no advantage over conventional weight loss diets and they're not saying it doesn't work mm. they're just saying it isn't the best but i don't know if, if, if uh, you've heard, uh, heard this this comes uh, from the it's called the 5-2 diet i think and michael mosley was the person who developed that so he, uh, michael mosley is a medical doctor who's become a uh, tv uh, well first a producer and then a, now a presenter is more is uh, best known for so um, Michael knows his stuff he, d- he developed the 5-2 diet wrote, wrote, wrote this book and it includes this intermittent fasting so five I think it was 6-1 at first and then it has gone to 5-2 <laughs> you need two days and you have to get your weight below 600 kilocalories a day on the fasting days i think yeah, that's what
2: that's the maximum you can eat if you are a man on those right. days yes and it's less so for women it's
3: a 500 yeah. right yeah. okay
0: okay yeah. and i my understanding of this is it is because when you go into starvation mode your body does all kinds of interesting things one of which is it starts repairing things that are broken and uh, does a yeah. certain amount of cell repair and yeah, all that that's, kind of that's, thing that 's the argument that I think is the theory so it 's yeah. not so much that it it helps you well, it does help you lose weight, mm. but that 's not the special thing about it you 're not mm. eating it's actually it 's because it 's putting your body yeah. into repair mode and what they've found
2: here is that um if you cut down your calories over the week rather than those specific two days, so that equals the same over the week, then it has the same health benefits and the same weight loss personally. I find it easier to do the 5-2 diet because I can turn my nose up at the Quality Street and chocolate biscuits in front of me and have a pint tomorrow.
3: <laughs> I mean, that's great. I mean, the other one they've talked about in the story is the sixteen-eight diet. Now, I've tried this oh, one wow. too. That doesn't mean you eat for 16 days and then starve right? eight. <laughs> um, it means that you uh, don't eat for 16 hours. So between 8 p.m. and 12 noon the next day, you don't eat. And between 12 and 8, you can eat as much as you like and whatever you eat normally um but um i mean i found that much easier than the 5-2 diet um i thought the 5-2 was particularly difficult but so yeah it seems a little
0: brutal isn't it
3: yeah, yeah but i think i think um the the tricky i think the thing with diets and i don't know if you find this as well and that's probably what a lot of people did this study found is that when you know you're on a diet suddenly you would like to eat more because you know you can't
2: um it's a funny thing actually i find I, the, the thing re- reason why it really works for me the 5-2 diet is because i spend my time when i'm not on it thinking i don't want to do it i don't want to do it or, I'm, or i have a burger you know sometimes that happens don't <laughs> tell anyone i have a burger and then i start wanting burgers because then whatever it is that makes you want that sort of of food kicks in right and then I start that sort of snowballs and then I have a fasting day and it all it all just switches off again and the next day after a fasting day, maybe towards the end of the day I'm thinking I fancy a burger but there, or I'm saying I think I'm gonna have a really big bowl of cornflakes tomorrow but actually when I wake up the day after it's all back to being a sensible chap well as sensible as I ever get
3: okay yeah that's interesting
0: moment there you okay. go there it mm-hmm. is because we're going to have to say uh, goodbye to uh, everybody so uh, uh for uh, from andrew uh, jamie uh josh and me malcolm uh, it's been great having your company don't forget to join us again next week for another edition of love and science have yourselves a very good evening and a fabulous christmas